0: Welcome to the Voices in Japan podcast with Ben and Burke. On this episode, Alexander Bennett from Kyoto joins us to share the wisdom he has gained about Japanese culture and also himself after having lived in the country for over 30 years. Alex is a professor at Kansai University, holds two PhDs in Bushido-related subjects, has appeared in an NHK documentary on Miyamoto Musashi, and has published multiple books related to Japan, including Japan, The Ultimate Samurai Guide. He is most well known for his accomplishments in martial arts, attaining top ranks in multiple disciplines, and especially for his dedication to kendo, in which he is 7th Don, coaches the New Zealand National Kendo Team, and is the editor-in-chief of the magazine Kendo World. Alex is a very humble person with an underlying intensity, and it was a real pleasure to hear his story and his thoughts on Japanese culture and life in this country.
1: So Alex, you've been in Japan for over 30 years, is that right?
2: Um... I sort of lost count around about 30, Um, (laughs) give or take, give or take. A lot longer than New Zealand, put it that way.
1: (laughs) Wow, yeah. I think I I found out you've been here since 1987.
2: That was the first time I came. Uh, That was for a a year exchange through Rotary Club, and I went to a high school in Chiba. And uh, So that was the first time, and that was for one year, went back to New Zealand, but I was already bitten by the bug. And so um, I couldn't wait to get back here. And so the first, after 1987, I was sort of coming and going for a few years, um, mainly uh, to satisfy my habit in the uh, dojo doing kendo. And then I started my graduate studies here in 1995, and I've been here um, full time since. And that's in Kyoto. Is that's,
0: your, your that's right and was it at that time when you were here on that uh the rotary program if i remember correct that uh, you first saw kendo or something or was it uh or you were thinking about checking out soccer but then you saw the pitch <laughs> in japan it just kind of is a big dirt pitch or something so that didn't seem to interest you too much so then you kind of decided to check out something else was that how it happened
2: yeah Well, I guess guess it's a little bit different in your part of the country, Um, Hokkaido, sort of, uh, I guess, Well, I have an image of um, lots of green fields and open spaces, but uh, when I was at uh, this high school in Chiba, as you said, I wanted to continue with my uh, cricket, with my soccer, and my cricket, of course, there's no cricket in Japan, (laughs) 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 but I wanted to uh, continue playing soccer, and I mean... I wasn't into any sports really, but soccer was my main one. And when I got here, it was holy crap! You don't you don't want to play soccer on a gravel pit, which is essentially what most high school sort of uh, sports grounds are. There's not much in the way of grass anywhere, and if there is grass, you've got to keep off it, right? So, <laughs> yeah. um, so I was sort of humming and hurrying about what I should do, and that was yeah. As you sort of alluded to, my host mother at the time she suggested that perhaps you know, since I'm only going to be here for one year, I should um, uh, try something a little bit more Japanese, which means the martial arts or baseball. (laughs) 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 I wasn't keen on baseball. And um, around about that time, um, I think you guys might remember the Karate Kid. um, Yeah, of course. uh, Which was very popular. And so, if there was a karate club at my high school, that would have been the first place I went to. But karate, funnily enough, is a bit of a minority uh, martial art in Japan compared to the others. And my school only offered judo or kendo. And uh, when I saw kendo, it was for the first time. And it sort of blew my mind. I didn't really know what to make of it. it was It was actually more frightening than impressive Um, But by virtue of me stepping foot in the dojo, the the guy who was in charge, uh, Sano sensei, uh, he assumed that I was there to join the club. And it was a bit like Hotel California in that respect. Once you check in, there ain't no checking out. And (laughs) so that was, I was kind of press ganged into it. I wanted to have a look and, and, you know, I I was interested, but I sure wasn't ready to make that leap. Um, so I was pushed instead, and that was really the start of it all.
1: What was uh, what was your first uh, experience like? Can you remember like your first class going into into the Kendo club?
2: It was horrible, <laughs> <laughs> and pretty much everyone since has been horrible. <laughs> it's hard work. Um, my first time, first time I went and, and looked, and I was told that I would be back at four o'clock tomorrow ready to start. And so I um, went back the next day and I was given uh, the bamboo sword, which is called a shinai. And I was taking, uh, taken through the, the most fundamental of exercises, which is is called suburi, which is just swinging the sword backwards and forwards ad nauseam. And this is... Uh, so that your body and the the weapon that you're using and your feelings and your mind gradually sort of meld together and it becomes natural because what you're doing um, is you're standing upright, holding with two hands in front of you a sword, um, which uh, it, it feels very unnatural and awkward Um if you think of fencing for example they take a very low stance and they're sort of quite balanced but kendo it's like you're standing upright and you've got to move from this position um almost it almost looks robotic to start with if you if you're not used to it and so i had to learn all of the basic movements before i was allowed to put all the equipment on and it was just tedious as hell um and not only tedious but it it, it's like in true Japanese budo or martial arts fashion. Um, the, the kind of teaching was very well; it was draconian, and you know, so, so one would could say quite violent. Um, especially now, in those days, it was pretty much the way things went. But now, looking back on it, it was like kids getting beaten up and <laughs> <laughs> by um, the senpais. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I was just doing this same old, same old Siguri um literally for hour on end. And every time I figured that it was okay to have a break, I would get a foot up the backside to get back to work and so I, I really had no idea what the hell I was doing. Um, all I knew Uh, was that I just had to do what I was told and not look at the clock because the longer I looked at the clock, (laughs) the longer train seemed to drag on. So at first, um, it was not particularly enjoyable. And as I said, all of the movements, I mean, I'm learning this from from complete, you know, from zero, Um, I'd go home with terribly blistered feet The soles of my feet were always blistered. Uh, That's because you do it in bare feet. I'd have uh, terribly blistered hands, um, and I would have sore muscles or uh, parts of the body that I didn't even know had muscles. It would be very sore every night. I'd go home exhausted, uh, pretty much go straight to bed, wake up the next day, go to class, not understand the goddamn, you know, goddamn thing of what's happening in classes because of the language barrier. And then training would start again at four o'clock for another two hours. And training was seven days a week. It was four to six on weekdays. Saturday, it was one to six. And Sundays, it was nine to six. So it was just, a you know, it was full time. And like I said, it was like Hotel California. I wanted to get out, but I just couldn't. But before long, uh, you know, the, the people that are doing it with me, they, they became very close friends because we're sort of in this uh, together and they really sort of helped me out, not only with the Kendo, of course, but with the language and understanding what the hell was going on around me. And so really I stayed in Kendo more than anything for the, for the friendships that I'd created in the club.
0: Is that, uh, to be honest, like, I don't know much about kendo, except for what I've read. Uh, I, I'm half Japanese and I do have a Japanese cousin whose daughter was very much into kendo. In fact, uh, she went to a Japanese university, I believe, on scholarship for kendo. I can't remember, somewhere in Tohoku, it was a big university for kendo, if I remember right. But, um, you know, and, and just seeing, uh, people practicing, uh kendo like at the local uh gyms and stuff the municipality gyms um that's kind of been my only experience with it but my impression is it's kind of amongst the martial arts that are practiced in japan it seems to have a very very formal aspect to it compared to the other martial arts is that true or and if so is there a reason behind that
2: yeah i think um well all martial arts of course are formal. Uh. To a high degree um, compared with you know mainstream sports but kendo is you know we, martial arts in japan are collectively called budo um, so people talk about budo or they talk about sports uh, but the, the truth is that even in the budo um, you know something like kudo, which is archery or karate or aikido or naginata or sumo or kendo they're all even though they're collectively called budo, they're all very different. Uh, they share common uh, elements and traits, um, the discipline, for example, the hierarchy, and also the underlying philosophy that practicing the martial arts is not just about uh, succeeding in competitions, winning and losing, you know, the competitive side, but there's um, a, a very important aspect to the martial arts um, in that they – Facilitate personal growth. Um, in Japanese, they call it ningen kaisei no michi, or a way um, of self-development. And so, the educational aspects of Budo, you know, they're fairly, uh, you know, important in all of the martial arts, but Kendo, in particular, um, sort of is, is very traditionalist in that sense. Um. So I think your observation is right. Kendo is a a little bit more formal, um, a little bit stricter perhaps than than the other budo. And one of the there are many reasons for that, but one of the reasons um, is well, budo uh, kendo, like other martial arts, is said to be uh, a lifelong pursuit. So. uh, you know, if you play baseball or you play soccer or rugby, once you can't compete anymore, that's when most people retire, right? And they might become a coach or they might become a a spectator or whatever, um, an armchair critic. But in in the martial arts, there is no such thing as retirement. However, uh, Martial arts like judo or karate are so hard on the body because they are so competitive when people are, are young, and you, you're really exerting a lot of physical strength. By the time people get into their 40s or 50s or 60s, they're they're physically quite sort of beat up. Of course, there are always uh, exceptions to the rule, but you know I'm speaking broadly here. Whereas kendo, on the other hand, is not. Uh, it doesn't. Um, rely on physical strength, and there's no none of this, you know, you're fully dressed in, in armor, you don't get injured at all. By the time you're 50, which I am now, um, I'm pretty much in my prime, which is quite remarkable for any kind of uh, you know full on physical activity like kendo is because it is full on. But mentally and physically, I've never been better, and it's like as you get older, you you seem to get stronger um, uh, as a whole, and so the your did you say your cousin went to a university uh, for on kendo scholarship?
0: Yeah, she did.
2: Yeah, so I, I Her mainly cousin's trained... daughter. Yeah, oh, okay, yeah. yeah. So I, I mainly train with students because I teach it at Kansai University, and they're a pretty decent university uh, for kendo in Japan. Um, so I'll be fighting young athletes. So, um, guys and girls who are really fit, really strong, fast, uh, coordinated and have come to the university because of their skill in Kendo, but they will always have a hard time against me, uh, even though I'm more than twice their age, but I will always have a hard time against the 60, 70, 80, 90 year olds who beat my ass silly <laughs> as well. Wow. And so it's sort of really hard to explain, but. It's like as you get older, your style of kendo changes, um, but you are still very much in the game. And that's why there's so much formality perhaps in kendo because uh, you know what the hierarchy is like in Japan. Well, that hierarchy is always there in kendo and it is always on the floor with you, keeping you very honest. So, um, that I mean, kendo... And in theory, any other martial art, but kendo in particular, you can have anything up to four generations practicing with each other at the same time. So that's one reason why that formality is there, because that that, that hierarchy is very present, not in theory, but actually on the floor. Another reason, I think, is because of all the, the budo arts, um, uh, apart from Kudo, perhaps, kendo has always been the closest – uh, well, uh, in in terms of uh, the cultural legacy of the samurai. So samurai equals swordsmanship, and also archery as well. Um, but swordsmanship, the, the kind of thing that we are doing uh, now has, has really got a very distinct and, and, and clear connection with the cultural legacy of the samurai. Whereas other martial arts... Um, they've sort of undergone uh, many changes. Some of them are even post-war inventions. Uh, So Kendo still has a very uh, strong awareness to um, its traditions, which is perhaps not so pronounced in other martial arts. But again, this is a matter of opinion, but just from my observations, that's how I'd explain your question.
0: Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, both Ben and I have some uh, experience in martial arts. Like I, I karate when I was growing up, and then I wrestled for many years, which isn't, wasn't really considered a martial arts until recently when mixed martial arts started to become more popular. But now we both practice uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I'm a brown belt, and uh, Ben's a blue belt. And uh, I mean, that has its roots in Japanese judo and Japanese uh, jiu-jitsu as well. But our dojo um, is very relaxed. It's a kind of a laid-back approach to the teaching style and everything and uh in brazilian jiu-jitsu it kind of depends on the dojo every every dojo kind of has its own style but in reading about uh kendo it was just very surprising about um how they are very uh serious about just like you were describing uh kind of incorporating the lessons that can be learned also into your own life because in brazilian jiu-jitsu as well like um part of advancement in belt rank is supposed to be based on how you're actually developing outside of the dojo as well. But we don't really get too much of that at our dojo. So uh to see that, you know, in, in a martial art like kendo and in Japan in general, to see that that's still a very much important part of it is kind of refreshing to know that it's still being held on to, that tradition is still being held on to very much um in that type of setting, yeah.
2: Yeah, well, um, Kendo also, uh, you know, it, you go through stages in your development and depending on your age group, uh, which most things are usually divided up into in Japan, um, the objectives for what it is that you're doing are going to be different. And we take Kendo as an example, kids who start out at uh, elementary school and then go to junior high school and then they go to high school, university, then they enter the workforce, et cetera, et cetera. Each of these cohorts does a different, well, they, they do the same kendo, but they do it for different reasons. And uh, that evolves as you get older. Um, so the younger kids, especially high school um, and college, university kids, I mean, they're the, – the only thing they're really worried about is competing and winning championships. So they couldn't give a damn about – uh, you know, the ningen kaise, the personal growth aspects of kendo. Um, but as I was saying before, the beauty of this is like, like um, you can just keep going and going and going. And um, kendo changes, uh, your kendo changes as your life situation changes, as your personality changes. Before you know it, you've been doing kendo so long that you realize that kendo has actually influenced your own life and your own outlook, your own values, the way that you look at things. And you can see after, in my case, over 30 years of, of practicing Kendo, that there are many things in my character, uh, which is very flawed, I might add, um, that is, you know, has been developed through my experiences in Kendo. And it's, it's at my age now that I can genuinely start preaching to the younger guys saying, Hey, you know, this is not only about winning and losing. This is, you know, this is about developing yourself, de- overcoming your own weaknesses, developing your own strengths, um, uh, developing empathy, etiquette, respect for other people. Um, and for your environment, they don't particularly get it and they don't particularly want to hear it, but it's planting the seed. And when they get to my age, they all start getting at it as well. And then uh, when you start, uh, uh, you you start to appreciate the older guys who are in the dojo and, you know, the 80 and 90 year olds who are still going and you can look at them as genuine sensei, people who were born before you, who are walking the same path and have actually um, developed their Kendo to such an extent and their character through their Kendo and vice versa, that you can learn a lot of life lessons off them. Um, But, if you try driving that point home to, to, to younger, you know, practitioners, of course, they're not going to listen. They don't want to, they're not going to want to listen because, you know, they've got the, the, the logical stages of their training that they have to go through first. Um, the fact that Kendo is something that you don't retire from, you do do until the day you die um, means that this uh, culture, if you like, is able to be maintained. So it's it's really quite a beautiful thing. In fact, for me, it's one of the most attractive aspects of kendo is, is, as I said before, you know, all these different generations of people, um, men and women, uh, Japanese, non-Japanese, all doing the same thing. Um, And they can just keep going and going and learn so much off each other. It's it's really quite a a, a remarkable uh, form of traditional culture, I think.
1: Alex, you you were saying that like the the younger guys that they're, they're just interested in competition at the moment, um, but you said like you know with kendo there's there's so much more, um, especially like you know what you say like respect and you know personal growth, and those are all kind of like tenets of bushido, right? And 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 you wrote a book, um, Japan: The Samurai Survival Guide, which basically kind of gives a, a layman's explanation of what Bushido is. So I think a lot of people don't really know what, what is Bushido. So could you explain to our listeners, or s- summarize if you can, what you know what is the meaning of Bushido?
2: Um, I'm glad you said layman's. It sort of sounded like lame explanation. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> my my, my, my um, microphone. Excellent.
2: This book here, I I assume you're talking about the uh, Japan ultimate samurai guide. This book, um, if I may, uh, I've written quite a few books over the years because that's my job uh, working at university. You've got to publish and, um, you know, the Kindle world and various other um, academic books and not so academic books. So, as you said, um, this one is for the lay reader. Uh, More than anything, this book is, let me tell you first why I I wrote it. Um, It's published by Tuttle, uh, which is one of the major uh, international publishers for things Japanese and things Asia, actually. And um, I got to know the the owner of Tuttle, and uh, he comes to Kyoto every year. He actually has a holiday house up in Hokkaido as well. Um, (laughs) He lives in Singapore most of the time. But anyway, he came to Kyoto uh, a few years ago. He comes every year, but when I met him um, a few years ago for the first time, he said, uh, I'd really like you to write a book for the lay reader uh, to introduce the intricacies, um, the profound philosophical and cultural side of the martial arts can you come up with a book like that and just do i have it here with me hang on Ah, oh, here we go you wanted me i don't know if you know of this book i've seen um, that before in- yeah
1: i see that in like kenokunya yeah. and Chan 4 quite often
2: yeah
0: a geek, a geek yeah. in japan
2: yeah and so it's the full title which Um, I can't remember, uh, a geek in Japan discovering the land of manga, anime, zen and the tea ceremony and it was written by a guy called Hector Garcia who's Spanish and lives in Tokyo and he's a bit of a uh, anime um, geek and he has a very popular blog and he turned this into book form and published it with Tuttle and it's one of the best selling books Hmm. Um, and so Eric, the CEO of Tuttle Said he wanted me to do the same sort of thing. You can see the similarity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He wanted me to do the same sort of thing, uh, except focusing on on the martial arts. And so I came up with a proposal. I sent it off to him, and he said, "Nah, I hate it."
1: <laughs> and he said, <laughs> he said,
2: "It's just too. It's too serious. It's too, you know, um, stiff." I don't know if we say that in English, Katai, that rigid? rigid, 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 maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, he, and then he said to me, remember what it was like when you were, you know, a teenager, you just spent a year in Japan, you went back to New Zealand, and then you realized that you really want to get back to Japan to do the martial arts again, because you felt like you had discovered something something very profound, uh, something that you wanted to know about more, something that you really wanted to uh, immerse yourself in. Remember that feeling that you had when you came over to Japan for the second time. And remember what you wish you knew, what you wish you could have access to, the information that um, would have helped you so much um if you had it, of course in those days there wasn't even the internet right let alone any books that were of any uh, particular use and so there were not uh, all, there weren't many resources that i that a young martial artist like me at the time and we're talking about the late 80s could draw upon um and use as reference as you try and navigate your way around not only the complexities of the world of buddha um and all the uh, excuse my uh, French, the bullshit that goes on behind it, you know, it it sometimes can be quite messy. But not only that, but uh, very closely connected with that is trying to navigate my way around Japan as well, trying to somehow fit into the dojo, trying to fit into Japanese society. And so when Eric um, from Tuttle said this to me, it's like, wow, yeah, I never thought of it like that. And you're right, because I really do wish I had um, so much more at my fingertips in those days, you know, like like people do these days, it's like you can pretty much get any information you want, but I had nothing. And basic, basically what he was saying is, remember your passion. Remember what it was like back in the day. And so, with that in mind, um, I went back to New Zealand uh, on sabbatical from my university, and I spent six months away from Japan for the first time in uh, in, you know, almost decades. And this was a few years ago, um, uh, about five or six years ago, I guess. And I decided I wanted to get away from people uh, because there's too many in Japan. I just wanted uh, time alone. And I disappeared into the mountains in, in New Zealand, in the South Island, basically walking uh, the backcountry tracks and hiking. We call it tramping in New Zealand and just use it, staying in the tent. And I had my little notebook and it was it was kind of like a detox away from Japan, um, and it gave me time to look at my experiences. You know, all these years living in Japan from a from the outside, from a completely different perspective. Because when you're in Japan, it, you, you you lose sight of things. Uh, it gets very stifling, and you very quickly lose the passion. And I'd gotten to that stage. And so when I went back to New Zealand and I was walking around with a little notebook in the mountains and every time I thought of something, I'd scribble it down. And and by the end of my um, uh, walking through, you know, I can't remember how many months I spent in the mountains, probably about three months or four months. By the end, I had an awful lot of information that I thought, well, you know what, if I could travel back in time and I had this with me, it would be amazing. And so that's what... This book came from and it's really genuinely written from the heart and I think it's really a a really useful book Um, but it's not selling at all. (laughs) (laughs) Of of the many books that I have written, uh, this is probably the number one worst seller and it really hurts me. <laughs> Actually, uh, they uh, Eric said to me the other day, you know, uh, we do the mail thing, and he said, you know, that book's not selling at all. It's, we're going to have to remarket it. We're going to have to change the title or something, turn it into a travel book or, or whatever. But, but what I've written in the book, as you said before, it's, kind of a, it's not only a layman's sort of explanation, well, aimed at uh, people who are not... Uh, particularly uh, familiar with Japanese history um, or Japanese culture, but it's it's got all of the information, the, the bare minimum that you should know if you were going to come and live in Japan and in particular, if you're going to come and live in Japan and study the martial arts. So it looks at, all aspects, all the things that I encountered, I experienced, I had problems with, I had success with, and it's all sort of written in here. It's like um, it covers a lot of stuff, but very broadly, rather going into too much detail. And it's quite tongue-in-cheek as well. And so my explanations of Bushido, uh, which are usually very serious subjects, um, is kind of Light-hearted, but it, you know, it might seem to some people that I'm taking the piss a little bit, but actually, I'm not. It's uh, it's calling it as I see it from what I now consider a very privileged position of being in Japan, but not being a total insider in Japan. Um, you guys will know what I mean by that. You know, you, you live here long enough, and you're all, you can assimilate no, I don't like using that word, integrate. You can integrate and, you know, you can get on, you make your way in life without any problem. But there's always times when you realize that you're you're not quite uh, the same as everybody else. Um, I've come to finally look at that as a great advantage. And so my sort of view of Bushido uh, is a little bit different than the standard Japanese person. But I look at Bushido with my foot in two camps, really, uh, from the academic side of things um, and also from the, the popular culture side of things. And so if you were to say that Bushido is the... Uh, what can you say, the moral backbone of the Japanese people and Japanese morality and sense of values and stuff comes from the samurai, and we, by doing kendo, we get access to all of this stuff. And I'd tell you that you're dreaming. Um, <laughs> it's, it's bullshido, as it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. um, So, of course, I mean, if, if people, you, you I don't know if you guys come across this, but you know, doing martial arts. When when somebody in Japan says to me, "Oh, you do kendo," and I say, "Yeah," and they go, "Oh, Japanese spirit," and I'll say, <laughs> "Why? There's not that many people do kendo." Go, oh, uh, bushido, bushido, and I say, well, "What's got bushido, bushido got to do with with kendo and the Japanese spirit?" And usually, the conversation will stop there, and there'll be an awkward silence and we'll go a separate way. It's like, it's like I've been really nasty to the person, but it's it's still like taken for granted that Japan is the country of the samurai and Japan is, you know, um, uh, the Japanese people embody by virtue of their DNA, the teachings of the, the samurai from, you know, feudal Japan. Um, of course this is, this is rubbish. Um, but having said that, there there are aspects of Japanese culture, and this is particularly pronounced in the dojo of kendo, that certainly do have direct um, connection, or at least you know uh, sometimes loosely linked to traditional values that you will find in old treatises on bushido that perhaps make Japan a little bit. Not distinctive. And just to give you an example, and please excuse me, this is a lot easier to explain in, in Japanese than it is in English just because the words, sometimes the you know when you try and put something into English, the nuance is, is slightly different. But just to give you an example of what I mean, um, the, ken, the kendo experience that I first had when I was at high school, I mentioned before that it looked very violent and the truth is, it it is, it was it is. Uh, you've got two people basically with bamboo sticks trying to beat the crap out of each other, okay. Um, and it can get really, really heated. It can get really emotional. And um, the theory is that the bamboo sword that you're using is a katana, and you are literally trying to cut your opponent's head off, um, or at least splitting down the middle and <laughs> you know, um, there's no, there's no hiding from it. That's what it is. Um, and when I first saw it, I remember seeing the sensei in, in the dojo, just literally beating the crap out of one of the high school kids. You know, the kid was on the ground the teacher was basically on top of him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow!
2: Yeah, digging, digging in, and the poor kid—you just you can't—you're you know, not allowed to stop. You just got to keep going. And when I saw this, it just about freaked me out. I mean, it's like if this happened in New Zealand, the guy'd be arrested for sure. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Um, interestingly, it's gone that way a little bit in Japan now. You can't do that sort of thing anymore. But in those days, um, it was just you know part of the course it's just this is the way it is and so that's what frightened me a little bit about it. i never understood that until it happened to me once <laughs> 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 well once and many many times after that um when was it? it was about six months after i got here um i was getting pissed off with japan uh i was feeling a little bit depressed about my lack of uh, progress in the language and I didn't really understand what was going on and I thought you know I've been here six months already I should be totally fluent and I should should be getting (laughs) all this stuff and you know everything was getting me down it was like the the classic culture shock experience and I went to the dojo as usual really in a foul mood and then uh, we went through our usual fundamental uh, basic lessons, and then it's time for sparring. And I lined up against uh, Sanu Sensei just so that he could take me through my paces, which was usually just pro forma. It was like, you know, I'd hit him a few times and he'll give me advice and that was that. But I was so angry at life at the time um, that I decided, bugger it, Um, I'm just going to smack you into the ground. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was quite a weedy little fellow, and he was definitely very staunch. He sort of looked like the uh, quintessential Yakuza down at the local snack bar. And so I slammed my body into him, and bugger me if he didn't sort of retreat, he got knocked back like that. And it's like, cool. Sort of like a, a very small victory, but it, a victory nonetheless, I thought, um, but it doesn't stop there, of course you've, you've got to keep going it's just it's a sparring thing, and then I thought I'll do it again, so I, you know it was a real massive stress relief uh, release as it was just smacked into him and went back again and he he got this twinkle in his eye, and he says, Ah, young Alex, here we go, you're on then, mate.' <laughs> In Japanese, of course, not not the Kiwi accent, and and so he returned the favour and started smacking me into the into the floor, and it's like it was all on, and then just, it just it escalates from there. And I know that this is sounding horrific to people who've never done martial arts before. I understand that it was horrific to me as well for me as well. But we're going through it, and, and gradually, um, you know, it was just totally mentally and physically exhausted if you can imagine sprinting for 100 meters okay you know that 100 meters is 100 meters and you run like hell and you know if you're fast you'll get there in 10 or 11 seconds and it's over well imagine sprinting that 100 meters screaming at the top of your voice at the same time because that's what we do in kendo Right, so that's that's it's just incredibly tiring. Now, imagine if that hundred meters turned into two hundred meters, then three hundred meters, and four hundred meters, and then ten thousand meters, and you just never know when it's going to stop. That's the kind of intensity that you are uh, taking to the fight. Um, As you know, as you're attacking and attack, 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 and I I was. Figuring this would all be over by a hundred meters, you know, um, to stick with that analogy, and it just didn't stop, and you know, got to the five hundred meter mark, I suppose, and I just collapsed. And when I collapsed, he jumped on top of me, and in his wonderful Japanese English, "Give up, car! Give up, car! Ah! on, on!" like he was, he was taunting me and it's like no <laughs> and so i if, i don't know where or how or why but you all that fatigue that fear you forget it and you start again i got my second wind and my third wind and my fourth wind and by the end of it all it was i still have this incredibly vivid memory of it um nothing frightened me uh i didn't care if i was going to die um, in fact I think I died a couple of times in the middle of it all and it sort of felt quite good. As in I felt like I was floating as oh the light <laughs> 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 Wow, this is cool. It was almost like an out-of-body experience to an extent. Yeah. And then it finished. And I looked at the clock after, you know, I'd settled down a bit, and I'd been going for close on fifty minutes of- Wow this intense uh, encounter with, with my sensei and he obviously figured that the time was right to show me the dark side. And what I learned from that was the kind of things that you would read in an 18th century or 17th century samurai book, like Hagakure about, Um, about transience and and about sacrificing yourself into something so that you have become completely at one with what it is that you're doing. You're sort of detached from uh, emotion, fear, desire. You are becoming so close to your, your true nature. And, of course, I had no idea how to... Uh, express that when it happened. I just knew that something profound had happened and something in my mind had changed. Um, It was, I guess you could call it a kind of a religious experience. And and so from this whole idea of, like to use the Japanese word, or to sacrifice yourself into something, um, to you know, that never say die attitude, that all of these sort of things that are written about in great detail in old samurai texts is actually something that you can experience in the dojo still. Whether this is a good thing or not, I think it depends on the person, but for me, it was life-changing. And it was because of that, because of that experience, because of that, uh, you know, that STEMI, that throwing yourself... Uh, into something come what may um, along with the relationship that you have with your sensei and all of the you know the various forms of etiquette and the protocols that go with it when I read a, an old Bushido book I actually get a lot of it, doesn't mean to say that I walk around the street with swords and we engage each other in, in life or death jewels, that's it, it, obviously it's extremely different and there's many aspects of samurai culture, which is just disgusting, uh, butcherous, murderous, um, and far removed from the sensibilities and the the kind of morality that we expect in the modern day. But there are certain things that are very profound and I have my own sort of practice and study, have been able to join the two and see that there, is, there are connections there and that what I learned from uh, that experience in the dojo and the many, other, uh, many others that I've had since is that life is a truly beautiful thing that you must never, ever take for granted. You must live each and every moment, each and every second to its, to, to the fullest. And sometimes uh, I can't do that because I'm a human being like everybody else. And when I can't do that, I think about these old teachings and the things I learned in the dojo. And it sort of keeps me back on the right track. So it provides me with an incredibly positive um, sort of guide, if you like, uh, to keeping on the right track and living my life to the fullest come what may it has given me an incredible zest for life. And this is where things like Bushido are often misunderstood. I think Um, if you read it and you take it, what is written in these old books like Hagakure, if you take it for, uh, take it literally, you're going to miss the point completely. But with that kind of experience that you've had with the body and the mind, you can, read, you can actually read between the lines and you can get that there's some incredibly profound messages that come from samurai culture um, that are still alive in the dojo, whether this is a part of Japanese people's morality as a whole. Well, clearly, you know, there's problems with that kind of analysis. But having said that, the influence is definitely there. And like the samurai today uh, in Japan is still considered very much to be the kind of the ideal to aspire to, in terms of strength of mind and strength of body, and in terms of uh, uh, the way in which you interact with other people, with with sincerity and politeness, and so on and so forth. Obviously, it depends on the person. Just because you do kendo or you do budo, or you you know, um, doesn't mean to say that you're going to be you're going to become a better person. It's got to be something that you want to become, and you can use it for that purpose. So I think there's a lot of bullshit surrounding the the Bushido myth, but if you look in the right places, you can find a lot of things that can really help you out and really give you a a clear understanding of our lot in life in the 21st century. The word that we use in martial arts training is keiko. Um, I know many women call keiko as well, but it's completely different. Um, it's written uh, with the kanji initiate and furui, which means, uh, keiko means to think about the old ways. So we don't say training, uh, reenshu, training, anything like that. We say keiko. And the significance of that is the other part of the word keiko is shokon or uh, ima o terasu. So taken together, the word, the word that we use for for training, if I use the word training in, in, in martial arts, is we're thinking about the past to shed light on the present. So it means by thinking about the past, you're thinking about the, the wisdom uh, of well, our ancestors or forebears who, who actually did experience life and death, mortal combat, and who created these systems which have been passed on through the generations into Japan to the present day. So by participating in that with body, you in some way or another are able to get, and I know this sounds weird, you somehow manage to get some kind of spiritual connection uh, with, this, with this wisdom and, this, and these teachings uh, and it does have an influence on, on your worldview and your outlook on life. And I'm speaking from experience, somebody coming from a very different culture and somebody who is by nature very cynical, um, but that is precisely the kind of uh, sort of experience or influence that this culture has, has um, had on me over the last three and a half decades.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. And, and uh, man, there was so much in there. One thing that came to my mind that I kind of wanted to ask you about, as you were describing all that, like, having gone through that and having such a profound experience, in addition to all of the studying that you've done, what kind of advice would you kind of give to foreigners that are kind of living in Japan, maybe haven't actually been here for that long, but they feel that frustration of, you know, why won't Japanese people expe- uh, accept me? You know, should I try to become 100% Japanese or should I try to, you know, exist as a foreigner or, you know, because that's a frustration I think that unfortunately kind of drives a lot of people eventually away from Japan or wanting to leave. What's your uh, kind of thought about all of that?
2: Yeah, um, there's a really good book that covers that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I tell you that—that's—I mean—that's one of the uh, a really core part of this. Jokes aside, and and I've actually written a, a lot of things in there because of my experience of exactly what you're talking about, and it can be, you know, very disheartening at times. And you know, Japan is not the easiest place to belong, and you also have to be careful because you can fall into a lot of traps, like like uh, just hanging out with the expats and. You know, know, there's ways around it. You can create um, a very livable bubble in Japan if you want to, which is far removed from the reality. And uh, if you've been here for 18 years or longer, I'm sure you've seen a lot of expats, so it's just a little bit, you know, kooky, a little bit out there. Um, My advice for anybody who comes to Japan um, or is a newbie here is – First of all, whatever it takes, throw yourself into the language. Absolutely um, throw yourself into the language. Japanese language can be daunting um, if you're only just starting out. Um, The Japanese people themselves take great pleasure in uh, telling me a lot that you Japanese is such a hard language to learn <laughs> you know, because it's so unique and everything, um, and it, it frightens people away. It's don't worry about the written stuff. Um, just learn how to speak the language. That, when you come over here, that's the first thing you've got to do. And you just got to you just got to immerse yourself in it. And if ja- there's a lot of Japanese people who are very proficient in English, and if you wanted to live your life speaking English in Japan, you could get away with it. And I know people who have been here for 30 years who, who don't know how to speak Japanese. So it's it's hard, but that, what I'm saying there is you've, you've got to have that goal to start with, and it will make things a lot easier afterwards. So first of all is the language, really focus on that more than anything else. The second thing is... Um, I would. My advice to people who are coming over here is get involved in some kind of community club or activity, um, so that you are actually um, hanging out with a lot of local Japanese people as well. It's so common for for you know non-Japanese to come over here and they sort of know one or two Japanese, but the, most of their friends are from their own country or other countries, which is fine. Of course, we want friends from all over the world. It's, it's great, but it, it's so lopsided, it's odd when you're in Japan. But if you join a club like, for example, kendo, or mind mind you, my explanation of kendo is probably going to put a lot of people off. It's not that bad, everybody. <laughs> but um, <laughs> some kind of cultural club, be it the tea, tea ceremony or be it Aikido or Kudo, or, or you know, it doesn't have to be a sport, just something that you are with... Uh, local Japanese people. So you get to meet them as, you know, um, as they are in society here, uh, not in the workplace um, or, you know, wherever, but just as another one of them, another one of us. So those two things are really important. And the third thing, and this will take a little bit of time, is, um, till you get to this point but I remember very well uh what what you were talking about at one stage when I was here you know after the after the first two or three years my my language ability was was getting up there um I knew because I spent so much time with the Japanese I knew how to act and behave in certain situations and you know, there's obviously frustration when Japanese people don't tell you what they're thinking properly and you have to sort of try and read between the lines to get it. Um, it takes time to sort of be able to, to uh, make those paradigm shifts in the way that communication is different and interaction is different. Um, but I was trying really hard. And I was trying really, really hard to fit in. In fact, I was trying really hard to become assimilated and I really hate that word, assimilation, but that's what I thought I had to do. And people say, when in Rome, do as the Romans. That's fine, but when in Rome doesn't mean to say you have to be a Roman. And this is a really important point, um, in that I was doing everything I could to assimilate. And then every now and again, I was reminded uh that I was not Japanese and I was an outsider. And I took this very personally and it's like, well, shit, what else do I have to bloody do? You know, before you, before you bastards treat me like anybody else sort of thing, you know, most of the time it's cool, but there'll be something that happens. And then suddenly you realize that you are slightly on the outside or a lot on the outside. And, and so this is a uh, this is where it gets very complicated and I remember uh I must have been about 20 years old um so I'd only been here a total of two and a half getting on 3 years and when I got to this stage um, and my one of my martial arts teachers um I do another martial art called naginata which is um Like kendo, but we use really long sticks, and it's mainly practiced by women. And my naginata teacher was a wonderful old lady by the name of um, Mitamura uh, Takeko Sensei. She was about eighty at the time. Timothy's eighty, and she came up to me one day when I was going through one of my foul mood episodes. (laughs) She picked up on that and she came up to me and she says, geez, Alex, you're sort of trying, you're trying so hard to fit in and you, you're, you're learning the language uh, so quickly and you, you're behaving just like a Japanese person and, and you come to the dojo and you're, you're, you know, you, you, you train hard and you, and you try to fit in. But New Zealand's not that bad, is it? (laughs) (laughs) and it's like wow it was like the watershed moment and what she was saying in her very japanese indirect way um, was that uh you don't have to copy everything that the japanese people do because not everything that the japanese people do or not everything about Japanese society or whatever, is good. Some of it's shit. So just take the good bits and take the good bits from where you were born and bred and and make make that the way you sort of interact with people and the way that you um, uh, show yourself. You don't have to be Japanese because you're not. And it seems so simple. But as soon as she said that, I just literally felt this massive weight come off my shoulders. It's still not easy, but you know, even now after all these years, it's like you know I'm I'm still an outsider. I pay more taxes than most people I know. <laughs> so I don't get the right to vote, and you know, I st- still you still have your ups and downs all the time. But one thing that I learned at this early stage, thanks to this very simple piece of advice, was that. Um, the way that you survive in this place is to be yourself, okay? And the best way to be yourself is to is to really have footing in, okay, you've got your own culture, you've got your own language, you've got your own upbringing, you're in Japan. That also, if you play the game properly, will be part of you as well. You might not be Japanese, but who is – what is Japanese? I mean um, – Burke, you're, you're half Japanese, you know? I mean, you're more Japanese than I am, but does that really make a difference? Exactly. You know, it's like just be who you are. That's how you survive. But I think that in order to do that genuinely, you've really got to immerse yourself in Japan to start with. And uh, then eventually you'll, you'll come across something that will give you that epiphany that sort of just makes it all make sense. So I actually call myself... Um, much to the confusion of my Japanese colleagues, I call myself New Zealander Nihonjin. It's like there's no such thing. What are you
1: talking about? There's all these
2: Yankee Americans and all sorts of things, right? Why can't there be New Zealander Nihonjin? So, I don't call myself, they like, they tell people to say to me as a, a, I guess, a kind of a, a compliment, more Nihonjin yori Nihonjin dashi, so more Japanese than Japanese. And I used to say, no, I'm only half Japanese. But, <laughs> but now I say, I'm a New Zealand Japanese. And that suits me fine. So, life for me is, you know, you have your struggles, you have your ups and downs, and you have your frustrations, but I am me, and I'm really. Happy to be me. Thank you very much. I don't have to be anybody else. So that—that's my my sort of uh, advice on on that particular issue because I think it's an important one for people who want to spend time over
1: here.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much. I think I think that's really good advice. I think people kind of lose track uh, or forget that just like you were saying, I mean, we're just all people going through life and growing as individuals and uh we have such a great opportunity being in Japan to pick up all these things that are Japanese and and put them put that into who we are and stuff. So, yeah, that that was a perfect answer uh to my question. Thank you so much. Oh, no worries.
1: And I think I think it's a, a great way to to end this episode as well, Alex. Even though there's so many th- more things that I wanted to to talk about, like your your NHK stuff that you were doing. You did a documentary about uh, uh, Miyamoto Masashi. Um, yeah, how you coached uh, New Zealand's o- Olympic team, right, or something for for Kendo uh, well. team. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah the uh, Kendo uh, team. So yeah. I, I wanted to get into that as well, but we, we kind of run out of time. So hopefully we could get you on later in, in the future and and talk about those things if uh, if you'd like to do that as well
2: yeah anytime guys um again i apologize when i start talking about Kendo i get a little bit carried away it was great yeah <laughs> no, sorry about that um no, no, but no, it's no. really nice to meet you fellas and and uh uh congratulations on what you're doing this was really cool thanks so thank you anytime you want to chat um i'll be happy to uh to oblige
0: great for sure, man. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thanks for joining us, Alex, and uh, thank all the listeners for listening as well. And uh, hopefully, we'll uh, we'll catch you soon.
2: Cheers. Bye.
1: Bye, everyone.
0: This episode of the podcast is being sponsored by Hokkaido Guide. Hokkaido Guide was established over 10 years ago and is written by locals for locals and international tourists. The guide contains information on all types of businesses and locations around Hokkaido. There's information regarding all things Hokkaido such as sightseeing, nightlife, events, services, food and restaurants, entertainment, outdoor activities, and much, much more. Currently offered in English and Thai, advertising space is available, so check out Hokkaido Guide for everything you need to know about this beautiful prefecture.